This is the fourth day of this September 2021 seven-day session that actually ends on October 1st. We'll return to our text uh, book published in 1959 called uh, The Practice of Zen, uh, translated, edited by C.C. Chang. We left off yesterday in uh, the autobiographical account of uh, Chinese Chan master Han Shan, where uh, he had uh, he had run into a traveling monk by the name of Miao Feng, who was with whom he was very impressed, and he felt some kind of affinity. Apparently, was hoping that they could travel together. But uh, the monk uh, left uh, without him knowing, and uh, Han Shan said that he he supposed that he just was the monk was afraid of being too closely associated with him. They might they might hinder his freedom. In other words, fear of uh, attachment or burden or something. But we haven't seen the last of Miao Feng. He says, in 1571, I was 26 years old. A heavy snow had fallen that year. uh, And by the time I reached Yangchao, I had become very ill. After he'd been sick for uh, some time, uh, he had to go and uh, do takahatsu in the street. Takahatsu is the Japanese word we use for... uh, the making the rounds it's it's commonly translated as beg uh, which it is here the translator says i had to beg for food in the street uh, but that just is misleading he's not panhandling uh, given the context the culture he was a monk he was esteemed and uh, he was giving people lay people the opportunity to acquire merit by giving to to him as a monk. They said, no one gave me anything. And he, he wondered, why? Why today am I not receiving any rice? Suddenly I became aware that I still had some silver coins in my pocket. I then gathered all the Buddhist and Taoist monks who were unable to obtain food in, in the snow and bought them dinner in an eating house, spending all the money I had. The next morning, when I went to the bazaar again to do takahatsu, I experienced no difficulty in obtaining food. So, Hanshan leaves it to us to come to our own conclusions. I'm skipping whole paragraphs here. It's quite a long autobiography for Teisho, that is. And uh, in the past, it's just it's taken four days uh, to go through this. And there's a lot of uh, uh, pretty weird things that he re- reports that I think we can we can do without. 
in the interest of saving time. He mentions that uh, he went to a certain place and the local mag- magistrate um, had became had become a, a, a real patron, a donor, uh, and uh, he Hanshan uh, edited and checked a certain uh, block printing of a, of a of a book, and uh, and about this book, he said, I had difficulty. I had had difficulty in understanding the thesis on immutability, uh, especially the part about the whirlwind and the resting mountain. Those words are capitalized, the whirlwind and the resting mountain. He had had doubts about this for some years, he said. Uh, in this, uh, in this part, uh, an aged Brahmin ret- had returned home after a lifetime of priesthood and heard his neighbors exclaim, Oh, look! The man of old still exists. To which he had replied, Oh no, I may look like that old man, but actually I am not he. And then when he, he read that pat when Hanshan read that passage, he was suddenly awakened. Then I said to myself, In reality, all dharmas have no coming and going. Dharmas means all teachings, all, no, all things. Small d, dharmas, means things, phenomena. In reality, all dharmas have no coming and going. Oh, how true, how true this is. In other words, this is the changelessness within change. One of the many paradoxes in this dharma, capital D, in this truth this reality that we're living. It uh, reminds me of a line from the uh, Sharangama Sutra, uh, swiftly flowing water when viewed from afar appears still. Another way to look at it is even more simple, just the one thing, Roshi Kapil used to say, one thing we can count on is change. It's the one immutable thing. He writes, I left my seat immediately and prostrated myself before the Buddha. As I made my obeisance, I felt nothing moves or arises. I then lifted up the curtain on the door and stood on the platform outside. A sudden gust of wind swept the trees in the courtyard, whirling leaves against the sky. Yet I did, yet I did not feel that anything was moving. This, I thought to myself, is the meaning of the whirlwind and the resting mountain. Oh, now I understand. This also reminds me of a koan in the Blue Cliff Record where uh, the great 
Layman Pong, after 17 years of training, when he was leaving the monastery, he went out, he was escorted to the monastery gate by a group of monks, and it was snowing, and uh, as he stepped outside, he stopped, he looked around, and he said, beautiful snowflakes, they fall nowhere. Later, even while passing urine, I did not feel that there was anything flowing. I said to myself, Oh, this is what is meant by the saying that rivers flow all day, but nothing flows. From that time on, the problem of life and death, the doubts on the where from before birth and the where to after death was completely broken. So, real real deep realization. The second morning after this experience, Miao Feng came in. That was the monk who had disappeared. As soon as he saw me, he exclaimed delightedly, What have you found? I said, Last evening I saw two iron oxen fighting with each other along the river bank until they both fell into the water. Get it? Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. These two are merely relative, and both at source are emptiness. Oh, and then he finishes by saying about these two iron oxen, Since then I have not heard anything of them. Miao Feng smiled. Congratulations, he said. You have seized the means by which you can afford to dwell on the mountain from now on. And then, and then he writes that uh, a Zen master whom he had long admired uh, visited. Uh, he was very pleased to have the opportunity to train under him. Uh, he uh, asked for his teaching. The master said that he should work on Zen by dissociating from mind, consciousness, and perceptions and also that he should keep away from both the holy and the mundane paths of learning. When he talked, his voice was like the throbbing of a heavenly drum. I then realized that the speech and behavior of those who actually understood the truth of mind are quite different from the speech and behavior of ordinary people. I think you can uh, take this too far. Um, I still remember the 
the voice of uh, Tangan Roshi, one of the places I trained in Japan. You could say it was like the throbbing of a heavenly drum, but there were other uh, Roshis there, esteemed teachers who didn't have extraordinary voices. Just a uh, something from uh, Hakuin. That that line uh, that Hanshan said, referring to what had happened to him, his awakening. Uh, I saw two iron oxen fighting with each other along the riverbank until they both fell into the water. Uh, Hakuin somewhere says, "The monkey is reaching for the moon in the water." Until death overtakes him, he'll never give up. If he'd let go the branch and disappear in the deep pool, the whole world would shine with dazzling pureness. Let go the branch. I think I may have said this earlier, but it doesn't mean doing something outrageous, letting go of the branch. It means letting go of your thoughts, just returning, uh, doggedly, persistently returning to the practice you're working on. And in that, in that returning to the practice is the letting go. We don't have to do anything with the thoughts. We just need to return to the practice. He goes on, one day after reading some of my poems, Master Fa Kuang sighed. This is beautiful poetry. Where else can one find such wonderful lines? But one hole still remains unopened. He laughed. I asked, Master, have you opened that hole yet? He replied, for the past 30 years I have trapped tigers and caught dragons but today a rabbit came out of the grass and frightened me to death. I said, Master, you are not the one who can trap tigers and catch dragons. The master raised his staff and was about to strike me when I snatched it and grabbed his long beard, saying, You said it was a rabbit, but actually it was a frog. The master then laughed and let me go. In 1575, I was 30 years old. With Miao Feng, I went to Wu Tai Mountain. Let me just say a little bit about Wu Tai Mountain. It's such a high point, and literally, uh, it was such a high point in my, uh, my one of my pilgrimages to China. Um, Wu Tai means uh, five terrace mountain. Uh, it's a legendary, probably the most uh, legendary uh, holy mountain in China. 
it was such a poignant experience to go up and it's a big there's a lot of acreage up there it's it's not don't picture uh you know mount fuji or mount everest it was a lot of a lot of parts to it it was uh so many ruins of temples this was 1985, no, yeah, 1985. Um, there were no, I don't think there was a single functioning temple. Uh, at its heyday, probably in the Tang Dynasty, even before Hanshan, um, it had had 800 temples up there. And then... Uh, by the end of the Cultural Revolution, this devastating um, catastrophe uh, in China where the Red Guards went amok, crazy, destroying everything. By the end of the Cultural Revolution, there were 75, I think, and and then, then there were the ruins of only a few left never forget the uh how much it had been taken over by grass tall grass a lot of a lot of different sites of just the ruins the bricks some bricks but then at the same time uh the chinese government had uh, decided that this was a way to bring in tourists they knew that wu taishan uh, Wutai Mountain was known worldwide among Buddhists. And uh, so they were investing at that time, investing money in um, rebuilding some of these temples in their own primitive fashion. We'd see uh, donkeys carrying with poles, uh, carrying up uh, bricks and other thing, lumber and I don't know what it's like now. I, I bet there's a lot of restoration that's happened. Again, he's 30 now, our hero, Hanshan, and he and his sidekick, Miao Feng, uh, went up to Wutai Mountain. Uh, on the 3rd of March, we cleared the snow from an old house and took residence there. Ranges of mountains completely covered with snow and ice surrounded our abode. This was the place I had dreamed of for a long, long time. Remember uh, a couple days ago, or yesterday maybe, uh, he had had this vision of a uh, of uh, Qingliang Mountain. That's uh, pure, meaning pure and cool, cool in summer and icy and frozen in winter. How much it had affected him? How much he had wanted to to go there? Well, he said, "This is the place I had dreamed of for so long. I felt as happy as if I had entered into a heavenly paradise, both body and mind." felt at ease and comfortable.
now. After some time, Miao Feng left while I remained alone. I fixed my mind upon one thought and spoke to no one. You know, this word thought is, uh, is uh, probably what the Japanese uh, call nen, the Japanese word nen, which is exceedingly difficult to translate. It's, um, I've talked to people about this, and thought moment or moment thought. Uh, it's not exactly a thought. It's a, a moment. Uh, uh, and, and, and we can, we can see that, uh, the word mu is this, is one such so-called thought. Or who, or what. I fixed my mind upon one thought and spoke to no one. If anyone came to the door, I merely looked at him and said nothing. After a while, whenever I looked at people, they appeared like dead logs. My mind entered a state in which I could not recognize a single word. At the start of this meditation, when I heard the howling of the storms and the sounds of the ice grinding against the mountains, I felt very disturbed. The tumult seemed as great as that of thousands of soldiers and horses in battle. I asked Miao Feng about it later, and he, had, he said, All feelings and sensations arise from one's own mind. They do not come from outside. This, of course, is standard dharma. Have you heard what the monks in the old days said? And he quotes, If one does not allow his mind to stir when he hears the sound of flowing water for thirty years, he will come to the realization of the miraculous understanding of Avalokiteshvara. We could say it's no different. They say it's sitting in the city with traffic noise and other other noise. Uh, it doesn't need to be some insuperable obstacle. We can we can find a way right there in the tumult to we can find this inner refuge. what the poet Shelley referred to as a smooth spot of glossy quiet amidst those battling tides. Everyone here can access that realm. Noise doesn't need to be a problem. If you get deeply absorbed enough in the practice you're working on, then everything becomes still. I then went to sit on a solitary wooden bridge and meditated there every day. At first I heard the stream flowing very clearly, but as time passed I could hear the sound only if I willed it. If I stirred my mind I could hear it, but if I kept my mind still I heard nothing. See, this again, this again points to the distinction between no-mindedness and mindfulness. Someone who uh, who aspired only to mindfulness would f f say that he's he's uh, 
he's at fault here. He, he's, he, what, you don't hear? Uh, you don't hear the sound of the stream? But it's not that simple. One day while sitting on the bridge, I suddenly felt that I had no body. There too, the whole thing about bodily awareness. Bodily, aware, bodily awareness is good, but it's not the only thing. There are other, other aspects of consciousness. My body had vanished together with the sound around me. Since then, I have never been disturbed by any sound. My daily food was a gruel of bran, weeds, and rice water. When I first came to the mountain, someone had given me 50 pounds of rice, which lasted for more than six months. One day, after having my gruel, I took a walk. Suddenly I stood still, filled with the realization that I had no body or mind. All I could see was one great illuminating whole, omnipresent, perfect, lucid, and serene. It was like an all-embracing mirror from which the mountains and rivers of the earth were projected as reflections. When I awoke from this experience, I felt as clear and transparent as though my body and mind did not exist at all, whereupon I composed the following stanza. And this is the verse. Suddenly the violence of mind stops. Inner body, outer world, both are transparently clear. After the great overturn, the great voidness is broken through. Oh, how freely the myriad manifestations come and go. So this is, is an experience, uh, of, of course, of another enlightenment experience, seeing the formlessness of form, seeing the, the no-thingness of body and mind, but not resting there, then going beyond, even beyond the emptiness. And when he says, the great voidness is broken through, and what does it reveal? Trees and cars and pussy willows and dogs and cats and clouds and how freely the myriad manifestations come and go. From then on, he writes, both the inward and the outward experience became lucidly clear. Sounds, voices, visions, scenes, forms, and objects were no longer hindrances. All my former doubts dissolved into nothing. When I returned to my kitchen, I found the cauldron covered with dust. Many days had passed without my knowing it.
In October of that year, that's uh, 1576, my patron invited me to stay at his house. His friend there asked me to write a poem for him. I replied, there is not a single word in my heart now. How can I write you a poem? However, both of them pressed me, and after their repeated insistences, I could not refuse. Yeah, this is his, his patron. The man who pays the piper calls the tune. I then glanced over some old and contemporary books of poetry to stimulate my thought. In casually turning over the pages, my mind suddenly became keyed to inspiration. Verse poured from me, so that a few minutes later, when Mr. Hu returned, I had written some twenty poems. Suddenly I became aware of the danger in this and warned myself. Notice, this is just what that devil in words, your habitual thought, is doing to you. Immediately I stopped writing. I gave one of the poems to Mr. Cow and kept the rest of them secret. Still, I could not seem to stop the creative outflow I had started. It was as though all the poems, books, or sayings I had ever learned or seen in my life appeared simultaneously before me, cramming the space and air. Even had I had thousands of mouths all over my body, I could not have exhausted the word flow. This uh, is not far-fetched to me, what he's describing. Uh, when I was working on Mu and getting very little sleep, working pretty much around the clock in the zendo, um, when I finally got some sleep, lay down, uh, that was what I had sometimes going on, that, that tremendous cacophony of words and voices. and It's just... Uh, we are, we are engaged here in something very mysterious. This practice, this intensive practice of Sashin is a, a scooping out of the mind. It's like deep sea diving and scooping up the, up the bottom and all of this stuff comes flowing up. Tremendous adventure. compared to going to going to space or skydiving or anything else that seems so daring it's nothing compared to this Robert Thurman uh, coined the term psychonauts we're not astronauts we're psychonauts we're we're venturing into the recesses of the mind really just exposing just uncovering the depths of mind that we normally don't have access to. It's exciting and can be frightening. But when it does get frightening, if, when it does get frightening, we've got this practice uh, to hold to that will carry us through any, even the most frightening states. It's like uh, um, 
Magic Flute, the, uh, the Mozart opera, uh, where the, uh, our hero, uh, has to, has to pass through the fires of hell, and he's given this magic flute. As long as he continues playing this magic flute, he can pass through unharmed. And he does. And then just very briefly, um, still now with all of this cacophony and these words and flowing out, he, he, thought, he thought to himself, uh, this is what's called the Zen sickness. You know, I've never been able to pin down this term Zen sickness because I've heard different ways of understanding it. But this is how Hanshan is understanding it. He says, oh, who can cure me of it? Well, since there is no one here who can do so, the only thing for me to do is to sleep, to sleep as long and soundly as I can. So then he barred the door tightly and forced himself to sleep. He wasn't able to, uh, when lying down, <laughs> he wasn't able to when lying down, so he took a sitting posture. Uh, before long, he forgot that he was sitting. He fell asleep deeply and soundly. Sometime later, the servant boy, they always have in these solitary retreats, they always seem to have someone who can bring them some, uh, some food. Uh, that's where the patron comes in to, to pay for this person to sustain them. The servant boy knocked on the door but couldn't rouse me. He tried to open it, but found it fastened. And then when uh, Hanshan's patron learned of this, he ordered the boy to break in through the window. Finally, he got in and saw Hanshan sitting there unmoving. They called to him. They, he wouldn't respond. They tried shaking him, but he couldn't move him. And then the the patron caught sight of a small bell which lay on a table. He once remembered, he remembered that I had once told him it was used in cases of emergency to wake a sitter from a deep trance. So he held the bell to his ear, Hanshan's ear, struck it lightly many times. Gradually, I began to awaken when I opened my eyes, I did not know where I was or why I was in that position. The patron said, Since I left the other morning, you have been sitting in this room. That was five days ago. To which Hanshan said, Why, I thought only a single breath of time had passed. I, he says, I sat silently and began to observe my surroundings, still not sure where I was. I then recalled my past experiences, and both they and the present ones seemed like events in a dream. Whatever had troubled me had vanished like rain clouds before a clear sky. All space seemed as clear and transparent 
as if it had just been thoroughly washed. All images and shadows dropped away into the great, all-tranquil voidness. My mind was so empty, the world so serene, my joy so great that words could not describe it. He writes that when he was 34 years old, he devoted himself to copying the sutras. This was a, a major type of Buddhist practice, copying sutras, sometimes in one's own blood. During this work, on every stroke of the character and on every mark of punctuation, I recited the Buddha's name once. Whenever monks or laymen visited me in the temple, I would talk with them while still carrying on my work of copying. If anyone asked a question, I answered without hesitation, yet my work was never hindered, nor did I make any mistakes in copying because of conversation. This is sort of the Olympic gold in multitasking. I did this every day as a routine, for not a trace of activity or quietness existed in my mind. This greatly surprised some neighbors who were skeptical about it. So one day they sent many people to visit me and do things purposely to distract me and divert my attention from my copying work. After this visit, I showed the copy to them, and when they found not a single mistake in it, they were all convinced. They questioned Miao Feng about my accomplishment. Miao Feng said, Oh, this is nothing. It is simply because my friend is well acquainted with this particular samadhi. That is all. So, uh, some uh, some texts distinguish between uh, uh, a uh, a positive samadhi and uh, absolute samadhi. Oh, wait a minute, I. I'm not sure about those terms. Two different kinds of samadhis. One is just while sitting, losing track of all sense of self, self and other, the world, and so forth. The other is functioning in the world uh, and, and without thoughts. And this is, as you can see, would be the, the, most, the highest functioning, the highest functioning kind of activity in the world, doing things, working free, unshackled from thoughts. That's what was Hanshan is describing here. And then uh, skipping a couple of pages entirely, uh, we find him 36 years old. He says, I vowed to call a great congregation for Dharma. And his friend Mao F- Miao Feng also wanted to form a non-discriminating congregation for Dharma. Yeah, what does that mean, non-discriminating? 
uh, I'm guessing that the, it means uh, non-sectarian. And then uh, they had this huge, huge events of 500 monks. And then he describes other huge um, convocations. And he says, when I was 41 years old, uh, after a long period of traveling and working, I was able to reside quietly in a newly constructed meditation lodge of my own. I need to skip further here. And then when he was 44 years old, he began reading the complete Tripitaka. This is the, the whole Buddhist canon of sutras, commentaries on sutras, and the, uh, the, the all of Buddhist philosophy and psychology, the uh, Abhidharma. He was lecturing on the Lotus Sutra and other great texts. And now, for the, uh, the finale here, ever since I left Wu Tai Mountain, I had thought of visiting my parents but I was afraid of being blinded by worldly attachments. Remember, in, in, uh, in China, to be a monk would mean to sever ties with your parents. <coughs> and uh, I think this is better understood in the context of Confucian, a Confucian culture, where ordinarily you would be obligated to care for your parents, as whenever, however much it's called for. And they recognized that if monks were uh, called away to do that, then they couldn't give themselves fully to the Dharma uh, with undivided commitment. And so that became part of the requirement of being a monk, is not seeing your parents. But here he says, he says, I then carefully examined myself to determine whether I would be able to visit my parents. One evening during meditation, I casually uttered the following stanza. Waves and ripples flow in the cool sky. Fish and birds swim in one mirror. On and on, day after day. Last night the moon fell from the heavens. Now is the time to illumine the black dragon's pearl. And there's a footnote here. According to old Chinese legend, under the jaw of a black dragon, there lies a most precious pearl. So it symbolizes the most precious thing to be found in the world. Somehow, having this, um, this vision uh, led him to the conclusion that he could now return to his native land and see his parents. He says, My old mother had heard of my coming. She sent messengers to ask me. Remember this mother, this notorious mother who called him trash and threw him in the river? She sent messengers to ask me when I would visit my home. In reply, <clears throat> I said that I had not been sent by the court to escort the sutras 
no, that I had been sent by the court, the imperial court, to escort the sutras, not just to go home. However, if my mother could see me in a pleasant manner, without grief or sorrow, and without throwing me in the river, no, she didn't say that, <laughs> as if I had never left her, then I would stay for two nights. When my mother heard these words, she exclaimed, This is an unexpected meeting, like finding someone of yours in another life. Overwhelmed with joy, how would I find time for sorrow? Oh, I shall be quite content to see him, if only for a little while. Two nights at home is far more than I had expected. When I reached home, my mother was overjoyed. She showed no sign of grief whatsoever. In her, I beheld only joy and good cheer. This surprised me very much. Yeah, we know how people can mellow in, uh, as they age. I've heard many, uh, many such cases, besides my own mother, who uh, became quite, quite different as they, as they, in their old age. In the evening, the elders from among our relatives came in. One of them asked, Did you come by boat or by land? My mother immediately answered him, What do you mean, come by boat or by land? What I really want to know, he said, is from where did he come home? I think this is all laced with double meaning. My mother replied, From the void he returns to us. I was surprised to hear her speak so. In my astonishment, I said, No wonder this old woman could give me away to the monkhood. I then asked her, Have you thought of me since I left home? She said, Of course. How could I not think of you? I then asked, How did you console yourself? She replied, At first I did not know what to do. Then I was told that you were at the Wutai Mountain. I asked a monk where this was, and he told me it was just under the North Star. I then made obeisance to the North Star and recited the Bodhisattva's name. That would be the Guanyin. After this, I felt much better and thought of you no more. Later, I just presumed that you were dead. For me, no more prostrations, no more thought of you. Now I see you as if in another incarnation. The next morning I visited the graves of my ancestors to pay my respects. This is also just expected in Chinese culture. I also chose the site for the graves of my parents. At that time my father was 80 years old. I looked at him saying, Today I bury you and so save you the trouble of returning to this earth again. Saying this, I struck the ground with a pick. Immediately, my mother snatched it away from me and said, Let this old woman do the grave digging herself. I don't need anyone else to bother for me. She then began digging up the ground in a lively fashion. I remained at home three days. When the time for departure came, my old mother was still in a very cheerful mood. Not until then did I become fully aware that I had a very unusual woman for a mother.
stop and recite the four vows.